If it's your first time here, I want to give you my sincerest welcome. On behalf of our fellowship here at CC Conejo Valley, we typically teach verse by verse. This morning, however, we're going to be doing something a little different. Many would call this more of a topical message, which is fine. I'm not offended by that. But I'm going to answer a specific question every single one of us has had to address in our own hearts. The question is the title for today's message. If God, why suffering? My task for this morning is to answer this colossal question using a book of the Bible, namely the book of 1 Peter. So before we read the text, let's pray. Father in heaven, a lot of us are weary and heavy laden, Lord. And this morning we need your rest. The only rest that you, have, that you provide in the person of your son. So Father, empower us by your Holy Spirit to receive these words that are inspired by your Holy Spirit, penned by the, by the hand of the Apostle Peter to minister to us, Lord, in our current and future persecution. We love you. We thank you. We ask that you answer these things according to your will. In Jesus' name we pray and all the saints said, Amen. Amen. So if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Now don't worry, I'm not going to read all of 1 Peter. But I did want us to look at the passage that we'll get to in our last point. So I'll be reading 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. Give you a few moments to get there. So this is Peter writing to the believers in Northern Asia Minor by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Verse 6 says, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thomas Watson once wrote, Christ went more willingly to the cross than we do to the throne of grace. I think what Thomas Watson was trying to communicate there is that during Jesus' earthly ministry, he saw, he saw something we often fail to. Hebrews 12 tells us that Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The writer of Hebrews goes on to write in verse 3, For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. That is why his death was documented and transformed every aspect of human history. Why? So you wouldn't grow weary and lose heart. That is why his death was documented. Now, make no mistake. The reality of pain and suffering in our everyday lives makes it difficult to accept the existence of God. Here's how the common arguments go. If there is an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good God out there, why is there so much suffering in the world? If he is truly all-knowing and all-powerful, then he must not be all-good because how could, a, how, how could a good God with so much potential and ability to stop it, let it go on? If he is all good and all knowing, then he must not be all powerful, otherwise he'd have the power to stop it. 
If he is all-powerful and all-good, then he must not be all-knowing because he must be stupendously ignorant and blind because just take a look around. In short, if God, why suffering? As you could tell from these common arguments from non-believers, the question of suffering almost never points to the evil done by humans, but always always has a finger pointed straight at the integrity of God's character. Somehow, atheists and agnostics don't take the time to consider the role humans play in the world's evil and suffering. They just automatically blame God for not stopping any of it. They will shout things like, why doesn't God do anything about this? Yet hardly consider the fact that he did. He sent his son. His son, who serves as the beautiful solution to the question of suffering, is available to all who call upon his name. No matter the reputation, no matter the circumstances, Jesus can and does receive those who are weary and heavy laden and gives them rest. On a more practical, smaller scale, Believers also seem to point the finger at God for their daily frustrations and difficulties, for their annoyances and triggers, for the loss of a job, bad grades on finals in school, for a broken relationship, and even for things like traffic or their local political leaders. But one thing, one thing is for absolute certain. Pain and suffering are as real as the chairs you're sitting in and the air that you're breathing. Those of you who have tired eyes and healing hearts as we speak know pain and suffering to be a part of the human experience far too much than you would like. Would you agree? So because pain and suffering are part of the human experience, inevitable and unavoidable, What relationship should we have with it? How do we react? Whenever it comes, do we do everything in our power to avoid it? Like moving out of state or walking away from responsibilities? Or is there an alternative? Now, what I'm not saying is to stay in that abusive relationship or have this sadistic attitude towards your pain because that's crazy. Straight up lunacy even. But the suffering you do experience as a result of natural causes like family death or accidents, things that are out of your control, how should we approach that suffering? In Acts 9, verses 15 and 16, Jesus responds to Ananias' refusal to to receive the notorious Saul of Tarsus with what becomes the very passage that defines the rest of Paul's life and his ministry. When I read this passage a little more carefully a couple years ago, it completely changed my perception of Paul and his ministry. Acts 9 verse 15 says, But the Lord said to him, Ananias, Go, for he, Paul, is an instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles, the kings, and the sons of Israel. And here's the kicker. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Have you guys ever read that? Paul's life was literally designed by the Lord himself to suffer. Paul himself, in a letter he writes several years later, communicates a similar unorthodox statement to the church at Philippi. At the end of Philippians 1, he says, for to you, speaking to believers, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. So not only does it apply to Paul, it applies to all of us. 
This theme of, of suffering is interwoven throughout the entire New Testament and is often presented as something done for Christ or because of believers' identity in Christ, simply because you proclaim his name. Suffering, therefore, is essentially a call to unity with him. Hear it from the Lord himself. In Luke 9, verses 23 to 24, it reads this, and he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. Hear it from Paul, again in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Both of these passages describe a death that needs to take place in the Christian. A death that looks like his. The Apostle Peter knows this, so he writes his first letter to the churches in Northern Asia Minor in order to encourage them to stay the course and persevere through their current and future suffering. Peter writes to a people who were facing diabolical persecution from Caesar Nero, a despicable, a despicable Roman emperor around 62 AD. Peter actually writes 1 Peter to believers who are facing persecution from the outside. And he writes 2 Peter to believers who are facing poisoning from the inside. That's why we read a lot of the passages about false teachers. So 1 Peter, he's addressing the persecution that's coming from the outside. 2 Peter, he's addressing the poisoning, the corruption that is going on from the inside out. So in light of the biblical view of suffering, Peter presents the Lord Jesus Christ in his letter as a paradigm for their response to suffering. A paradigm, as the Oxford English Dictionary defines the word, is a typical example or a pattern of something, a model. So this morning, my family, I want to show you how Peter presents Jesus as the typical example or the paradigm to guide believers through their response to suffering and subsequently ours as well. I pray these words are like, food to your soul by the grace of God. Now let's briefly look at the outline together. So these seven passages that serve as the seven points of the message are the passages I found to be the most relevant in answering our question of suffering. Point number one, living hope through resurrection. Peter uses Christ's suffering and his eternal victory over it in order for believers to look forward to their own eternal victory. Point number two, living stones rejected. Peter mentions Christ in this passage as the rejected living stone in order to show that believers as living stones will be rejected also. Point number three, reviled for righteous living. Peter presents Christ as one who was reviled, yet did not revile in return so that his followers do not acquire a heart of vengeance. Point number four, the just for the unjust. In this passage, Peter calls them to understand the selflessness of Jesus and his suffering and his death for the unjust so that it may motivate them and us to endure unjust suffering for doing good. Point number five is time in the flesh. Peter presents Christ as the ultimate proof that divinely ordained suffering can lead to victory over evil. Point number six, shared sufferings. Peter invites us, invites believers, to share in both Christ's suffering and his glory, which would make any and all present and unavoidable suffering worthwhile. And then lastly, point number seven, momentary suffering for eternal glory. In that passage, Peter promotes perseverance, and concludes with a strong hope in God's sovereign work in preserving those 
whom he has called to his eternal glory in Christ. Now we'll start with what theologians consider as the preamble of Peter's letter. If you can turn to chapter 1, verses 3 and 5, or 3 to 5. So 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 3 to 5, read, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has called, caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So here, Peter presents the means by which believers are able to have a new life and a living hope. And that is because of the empty tomb. Made available to us because of God's mercy. He showed us mercy. He did not treat us as we deserved to be treated. That's what mercy means. In this opening of his letter, Peter reminds us of Christ's death and his eternal victory over it in order to provide us a living hope and a reason to rejoice. As we look forward to our own eternal victory in salvation. One theologian writes, when asked for evidence of his uh, when it, excuse me, when asked for evidence of his identity, Jesus, the creator of space, time, matter, and the spiritual realm, performed miracles showing his power over space, time, matter, and the spiritual realm. So if you're at a place this morning where you're asking God for evidence by saying, is Jesus our true solution? Is he really the Messiah? Or shall we wait for another? If you're there, you're in good company because John the Baptist asked the same thing. My exhortation to you is look at how he proved it. There's a reason why Christmas and Easter are such popular times to attend church. Because these holidays represent the God of the universe entering the human experience by being birthed into it and conquering the very thing that ends it, death. So when people encounter you, what do they see? Do they see a disgruntled person bickering over saying happy holidays or Merry Christmas? Or do they see someone with the light of heaven on their face and the hope of glory in their eyes? Peter further illustrates this hope as an imperishable, undefilable inheritance reserved for them in heaven which is protected by the power of God. This inheritance of ours will never, ever be destroyed and will never be corrupted. When you had breakfast this morning or your morning coffee, did you think about that? Because although it seems like a high and lofty truth, it's what keeps us going. Because it's ours. Here's what this provides to us. This causes our current circumstances to become more bearable because of our transcending joy that comes from meditating on that imperishable inheritance. This inheritance, R.C. Sproul writes, first belong only to the Son of God. Through Christ, we have become joint heirs with him. Whatever inheritance God the Father has reserved for his son, he now shares with all those who have been adopted into him. Christ and what his resurrection makes available provides the living hope that will motivate suffering believers to persevere. So although, although it may seem foolish, corny even, to think about and meditate on your glorious inheritance when you wake up in the morning, when you're sharing coffee with your coworkers, that is what will get you through. By Peter beginning his letter in this way, 
he presents the Christian life and the living hope that characterizes it, he describes it as this. He presents it as this, determined by the reality of the past, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and is guaranteed into the future because Christ lives forevermore. In other words, our daily living hope was set in stone the moment of the resurrection and is guaranteed for the future because Christ lives. So right from the get-go, Peter provides a lens for us by which all believers are to see their circumstances. Your suffering now is designed to bring you face-to-face with him and his suffering in order for you to walk out of that tomb with him. That's what you're suffering now, the suffering that you have experienced in the past and the suffering that you will experience in the future. That's what the sovereign Lord of the universe has orchestrated, has designed it for it to be, to bring him face to face with the King of Kings. This allows our daily behavior to reflect the life of the Savior. A crucifixion, a dying to self, so that we may experience the glory of Christ's victory every day, here and now. Now let's move on to point number two. Living stones rejected. Verses four and five of 1 Peter chapter two read this. And coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This mention of Christ as the rejected living stone provides us with an understanding that as living stones ourselves, we are being raised up to be a chosen race and a holy priesthood. So in light of that, because Jesus is the living stone who was rejected and we, be, we are being built up as living stones, we will be rejected also. Do you sit with that truth often? When someone rejects the message of the gospel and they begin to attack your character, do the words of Jesus replay in your mind? If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Not for being a jerk, but because you identify with the risen Lord. As weird as it sounds, those words of Jesus should be like music to our ears in our current day. In fact, look at verse four again. What does Peter give us as the alternative? He gives us this. Jesus being rejected by men is choice and precious in the sight of God. So you, as a blood-washed, born-again believer, are choice and precious in the sight of God. Peter's use of the phrase living stone links Jesus back to the living hope mentioned earlier in in, uh, chapter 1, verse 3, which highlights his resurrection status as both life-sustaining and edifying. It keeps us going and it builds us up. So not only does the resurrected Jesus sustain us, he also causes our growth. Therefore, the living stones of verse five are those who share in Christ's risen life, making the rejection of the living stone in verse four, our rejection as well. This right here, what Peter writes here, it profoundly unifies believers with Christ in both his life-giving, fully sustainable hope, as well as the blatant rejection we have had and will have in a world filled with disbelief, slander, and disobedience. So you have the living stone, Jesus, along with the living, along with the living stones, all of believers, together in the house that he's being built up which further illustrates the unity between Jesus and his followers. 
Those who don't believe, however, are not unified with Christ, in turn, rejecting all those in Christ as well. So you get someone who denies the deity of Christ, who denies the risen Lord himself, and he or she denies everyone else who claims that name. All of this rejection that Peter is referring to is not to serve as discouragement for us. And I'll admit, it's difficult not to see it that way. But because far from being rejected, Jesus is described as the precious chosen stone in the sight of God, which implies this immense value in Christ. So by default, we are incredibly, incredibly valuable and have the dignity that no one and nothing could ever take away from us. Regardless of the world's recognition, Believers being built up as a holy priesthood in verse 5 is important also because a priest's role was to offer acceptable sacrifices. So in this context, it means that Jesus is the means through which our services become acceptable in the eyes of God. So picture it like this. All of our efforts, all of our prayers, all of our sacrifices that we make daily Jesus receives them into his hands, forms them, molds them, polishes them up, checks for any blemishes or bad intentions, because we all know we serve with the best intentions. And then he offers it to the Father so that he can delight in them. That is Jesus' work as mediator. Outside of that, all of our efforts, all of our prayers, all of our sacrifice falls short. They don't make it up to heaven. I'm sorry. Hate to break it to you. This highlights how necessary and special Jesus is to us in our relationship with the Father. And our dependence on his finished work as a mediator for the Christian life. Jesus makes it possible for us to please the Father in the midst, in the midst of our darkest days. He is the light that shines brightest when we're in that cold, dark tomb. Which is a theme we also see in our next point. Point number three. So as we move through the letter, for point number three, reviled for righteous living, Peter then presents Jesus as the prime example for how to respond to harsh and unjust treatment in chapter 2, verses 20 to 25. Follow along as I read it here. Verse 20 of chapter 2. For what credit is there if, when you, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do it what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Verse 23, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you are healed. Verse 25, for you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. While in this world, Peter understands that there will be suffering and harsh treatment for those who are reading his letter as we are this morning. And he seeks to communicate to them and to us that unjust treatment will come either as a result of your own sin or as a result for your righteous living. From the human perspective, everyone has, does, and will suffer for something. If you live long enough, you have seen that as a present reality. 
You, however, have the choice whether you want to stay in your sin and suffer the consequences of that sin, or you can welcome the new life in Christ and suffer for living righteously. In turn, making you more and more like your Savior as you await to see him face to face in the end. As Pastor Dave likes to say, fellowship or rebellion, choose one. There's no middle ground. Peter focuses on the consequences they will have to persevere through. And if they patiently endure it, Peter says this finds favor with God in verse 20. Now, before using that phrase here in verse 20, Peter uses it in the previous verse, verse 19, when saying something extremely difficult for us to grasp and to swallow. Speaking to slaves, he says, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. Verse 21 then marks the transition from the, from the slave-master relationship to magnify the suffering of Christ as the perfect example. Verse 21 reads, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. So here's what this means, as harsh as it sounds. Believers are called for this purpose, to not revile in return as they are reviled, as we are reviled, because Jesus didn't. When suffering at the hands of injustice, do not, do not acquire a heart of vengeance towards your enemies because Jesus didn't. He prayed for the people who put, um, put him on the cross. So you have no right, no right to respond to a slander at work with the same evil that you received. You have no right. This is completely, this is completely upside down to a modern world filled with revenge and the desire to humiliate each other. I need to show him that he was wrong. I mentioned, I mentioned this on Thursday, but I'll mention it again this morning. When you have a broken heart or you've been humiliated in some way, don't we react in such punitive ways sometimes? We get this attitude of, I want you to feel what I felt. I want you to hurt like I hurt. The goal then at that point, if you have that heart of vengeance, is to inflict punishment in such a revengeful way. As fathers, we do this to our children. As husbands, we do this to our wives. As children, we do this to our parents. You won't let me go out? Well, I'm going to do what I want. You have to feel my absence, which is why the silent treatment is such a prevalent thing, isn't it? How many of you argued on the way here? How many of you didn't argue, but just stayed silent, didn't play a single song because of the, the, that tension, that hate, that was in your heart. You ever walk away from an argument having won it, yet you still walk away sick to your stomach thinking, why in the world did I say that? I knew, I knew the conversation was all going to be over once I said that. So why, why did I? That right there, church, is a practical representation of what Peter is encouraging his listeners to prevent. So you may not be persecuted, you, you may not be at the threat of being crucified. But you do, you do lie at the threat of falling into this evil, vengeful attitude every single day. 
We can have victory in this, though, if we do what Jesus did. Jesus kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously, as we read in verse 23, illustrating the means by which patient endurance under unjust reviling is accomplished. Now, if you ask, well, how do I do it, Chris? Please help me because I'm trying to have a nice, peaceful drive home. I need you to trust the perfect, righteous judge. I need you to trust him. In all forms of suffering, the believers Peter is writing to must look to Christ as their standard because for our Savior, the path to glory was the path to suffering. And the same pattern is expected for all of his followers. It's going to be hard. It has to be. Otherwise, it wouldn't be worth doing. By Peter presenting Christ as the perfect example of enduring slander and physical violence by entrusting himself to the righteous judge, he provides his audience a blessed assurance of hope. Peter's goal is not for him and his hearers to seek out suffering, because that'd be weird, but to have meaning and hope in the face of it. Because being identified with Christ affirms the sufferer's dignity. Even if you cannot immediately resolve your suffering. You have dignity and you have meaning and you have hope in the face of it. Anyone or if you decide to remove Christ, you have just removed your only solution. If you try to argue him away, you, just, you have just argued away your only solution. My brothers and sisters in Christ, we will never, and I will argue this till I'm blue in the face, we will never suffer a greater injustice than he did. Persecuted by his family heritage, abandoned by his friends, betrayed by a close companion, executed by the state. We will never suffer a greater injustice than he did. So in every situation, we are called to respond like him. I can only imagine the comfort and the sheer strength this brought to those suffering at the hands of Caesar, of Caesar Nero. Those who are suffering at the hands of unjust rulers, kings, and slave masters. Yet how mindful of God to provide his own son as the example of how to persevere through vile and wicked persecution. The Father in heaven was simply like, here you go. I give you my prize, my treasure, the eternal second person of the Trinity for you so that you can have a peaceful ride home. That is how beautiful the gospel is. That is how personal our God is. He wants you to have true and lasting peace and to reconcile with those who have hurt you. Now, if this all sounds absurd to you, which it very well might, peaceful ride home may sound absolutely impossible, especially if you have young children, this next point will hopefully bring some clarity. Point number four, the just for the unjust. In 1 Peter 3, 13 through 18, Peter once again presents Jesus as the standard marker for how all believers, not just the believing slaves, as seen in the previous section, are to approach the slander they will receive for doing things as unto the Lord. So 1 Peter chapter 3 starting at verse 13. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear the intimidation, and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give you an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Verse 16, and keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, 
those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for things once for, for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Peter affirms how believers are blessed if and when they suffer for the sake of righteousness in verse 14. But Chris, what if I feel intimidated by those persecuting me? What if I'm beginning to avoid them because of what they might say or do? For me, claiming the name of Christ. Peter gives us an alternative. He says to sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts. He presents the Christian's response to unjust suffering with both a do and a don't. The don't is do not be afraid of the opposition. The do is remain faithful in Christ, to Christ, which is what sanctify Christ in your hearts means. But what does that look like exactly? It looks like purposefully meditating on his position on the throne in heaven and his position on the throne of our hearts. That's how it's made possible. When we do that, we are able to live out the popular apologetics verse that follows in verse 15, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you with anger and vitriol. Is that what it says? With gentleness and reverence. This causes us to recall back to what Peter says in chapter 1, verse 3 to the living hope Christians are reborn into through the resurrection of Christ. Now, here's what I want you to do. Here's what I want you to do. Here's what I want you to do when your day gets hard for being a living testimony. Are you ready? You say this to yourself. I am seated in the heavenlies. This too shall pass. I am one day closer to heaven where the streets are gold and the sea is glass. I am seated in the heavenlies. This too shall pass. I am one day closer to heaven where the streets are gold and the sea is glass. In verse 17, Peter communicates that their suffering for doing what is good is as according to God's will. This introduces verse 18, which serves as a reflection Reflective illustration of Christ also suffering for the unjust. So what Peter does here is that he masterfully presents the death of Jesus as a monumental example of this theme, in spite of the scandalous picture of the just suffering for the unjust. This presents an assured, comforting promise to Peter's audience and the rest of believers, which is this. The faithful, the faithful will be brought safely through the calamity of life in this world because of Christ's death and resurrection. Church, in the midst of our current or future persecution, Peter calls us to understand the selflessness of Jesus in his death for the unjust so that it may be a motivating factor for us to endure unjust suffering for doing good. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. This leads us to our next passage. Point number five, time in the flesh. In 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter writes in the first two verses, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men but for the will of God can i just tell you that the most secure the most secure place a believer can be is at the center of god's will 
In the previous section, we observed how Peter introduces his notion of suffering as possibly being according to the will of God, which would understandably startle many believers. What do you mean, Chris? What do you mean, Peter? How could my diagnosis be in God's will? How could my layoff when I provide the only income in my family be God's will? How could my spouse leaving be, be in God's will? This is difficult, and I hear you. However, in this section, Peter presents Christ as the ultimate proof that divinely ordained suffering can and does lead to victory over evil, which is made possible through believers arming themselves with the same purpose. Peter describes it as a weapon when he says arming themselves. According to what Peter presents in this passage, this same purpose is this, suffering in the flesh so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh for the will of God, as opposed to what? Rather than for the lusts of men. This passage serves as a call to repentance, a call to change. As believers reflect on the sufferings of Jesus when he was in the flesh. That is how we make it through, family. We say, you know what? I'm going to live like I'm at the center of God's will because I am rather than what my flesh and the culture wants me to do. The world, the world wants you to question God. The world wants you to walk away. You have a watching world, church, waiting for you to slip and deny God of his good plan for you. Don't bow the knee to the godless society. Bow the knee to the Savior. In no way does verse 1, however, where Peter writes that Jesus suffered in the flesh, indicate that Jesus ever sinned. In fact, Peter is more than likely referring to believers who, if they suffer in the flesh, they will cease from sin because they are suffering according to God's will. R.C. Sproul comments on this by saying, living for the will of God rather than for the lusts of men means that it is a release from sin and a hold, and the hold that it had on believers' souls. Every single one of you who consider yourself a born-again believer know how tied to your sin you were before you came to Christ. Those of you who don't consider yourself born-again believers may not recognize it, but just know that you are a slave to your flesh. Those desires, those intrusive thoughts that come up when you get angry, when you get sad, when you're hurt and react to those, those things in destructive ways, you are being and acting as a slave to your flesh as opposed to the slave to the Holy Spirit. This change needs to happen so that when we come to Christ, we come by repentance to live according to God's will. And Paul's suffering or not Paul, Peter's suffering audience certainly had the inclination to submit to the lusts of men and take the path of least resistance. Caesar Nero was literally setting these people on fire and lighting his garden with them. Certainly they were inclined to take the path of least resistance, as, and many of us do today, but that is why it is so powerful that Peter reminds them of Jesus' suffering on earth. Jesus submitted to the Father's will in the Garden of Gethsemane, allowing for the, def allowing for the defeat of sin and death. Likewise, as sufferers in the flesh, sin will cease as we live for the will of God which is the most secure place a believer could ever be. So again, our suffering here, our suffering here draws us closer to our Savior, which leads us to our next passage. Point number six, shared sufferings. Chapter four, 
verses 12 through 19. So in light of the accurate view of suffering while in the flesh, Peter then moves to encourage us to, as we exhibit shared unity with Christ in the midst of the fiery ordeal among them. In short, 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19 describes how the destiny of Christ is the destiny of the Christian. Let me read the passage here because it's so good. Listen to this. Chapter 4, verse 12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as murderer or a thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in his name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Verse 19, therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. My biggest prayer, being a teacher here at Hillcrest, is for every single one of my students to embrace verse 19. Peter here speaks of a destined unity. This destined unity moves the believer to joy because it is an invitation to share in both the Savior's suffering and glory. Never forget that. This makes any and all present, unavoidable suffering worthwhile, bearable. It is all worth it because my destiny is glory and exaltation, as was my Savior's. This should cause us to look death straight in the face and say, death, where is your sting? Not only does Peter draw upon believers' shared unity with Christ in his suffering and exaltation as a reason to rejoice, but he also mentions the blessed comfort of the spirit of glory and of God resting on them. In your agony, in your dark night of the soul, when you're done trying everything outside of Christ to feel at peace again, God himself is with you and gives you a divine supernatural comfort only he possesses and is able to impart. This divine comfort is crucial because our suffering will come as no surprise. So we are once again encouraged to suffer as a Christian rather than an evildoer. If you weren't aware already, many of you have experienced this already firsthand. Suffering is inevitable. You can't avoid it. Alistair Begg says this, the Bible confronts us with the reality that life is brief, death is certain, and judgment awaits. Now the real question is, are we going to suffer for doing what is right, making us like our savior, or are we going to suffer for doing what is wrong, making us like the serpent? In verse 19, Peter exhorts his readers to entrust their souls to a faithful creator, which bears similar language to what he says in chapter three, verse 15, where he says to sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. By doing this, Peter uses Jesus as the example for how we are to follow in his footsteps when he himself was reviled and entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Now, on to our last passage before concluding. Quite possibly the most precious passage for suffering believers. Point number seven, momentary suffering for eternal glory in chapter five, Verses six through 11. Verse six says, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. 
Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him, to him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Reflecting back on our first point, Peter's preamble serves as the cause of suffering because believers have been called to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. Now, what do you need in order to have a resurrection? A death. This is what makes a resurrection possible. So in chapter one, his preamble serves as his opening remarks and then concludes his letter here in chapter five by giving his reason for writing in verse 12. He says, I have written to you briefly to exhort and to testify that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Suffering, as it did for the apostle Peter and the apostle Paul, puts you face to face with the grace of God because it leads you to worship in a way you never would have before. Charles Spurgeon says this, my dear friend, when grief presses you to the dust, worship there. In this section of chapter five, Peter promotes perseverance with closing commands, warnings, and reassurance that their suffering is not exclusive to them. They're not the only ones that are experiencing this. And let me tell you, church, you aren't either. This section concludes with a strong hope in God's sovereign work. And the key verse in this passage is verse 10, which says, after you have suffered for an eternity, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. This verse is crucial to sit with for a bit because Peter presents Jesus as the means by which eternal glory with the Father is made possible, but with momentary suffering as the necessary prerequisite. Death and suffering have to come in order for resurrecting glory to occur. That is the economy of the human experience because our first parents messed it all up. And guess what? We would have too. And we do every single day. Peter describes the suffering as lasting only a little while and reminds suffering believers that in the end, their period of test and trial will result in triumph. It may not feel like a little while now, but in view of the eternal bliss of heaven, Jesus saw the joy, endured the cross, and obeyed delightfully. So why can't we? This is the view Peter is calling his audience to hold in the midst of looming and or current persecution. It is also quite spectacular that God's eternal glory which he rightfully possesses and will not share with any man, gracefully calls believers to participate in it. What a great and an awesome God. In what is commonly known as a high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus prays to the Father and describes the nature of his earthly ministry as an accomplished work. His time in the flesh, so to speak. As a result of this accomplished work, Specifically in verses 4 and 5 of John 17, his high priestly prayer, Jesus asked the Father to glorify himself with him and to essentially restore or resume the glory they shared, they shared together before the world was. This, church, is monumentally important because regarding Jesus, glory with the Father is going to be restored and resumed as it was, 
And for the believers, glory with the Father is presented as a calling, an invitation to be received only through Christ. Jesus, as the eternal Son, resumes sharing the glory of the Father, and the church, as his body, are invited to it. In light of what Peter composes in this passage, he has provided his audience with the blessed assurance that at the end of their momentary suffering, they will inherit a future glory because of their unity with Christ. That is what we hold on to with both hands. It's been said that if you want a religion, if you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. Don't lose heart. Those of you who are hurting, those of, you, those of you who are praying for a healing, don't lose heart because he who counts the stars and calls them by their names is in no danger of forgetting his children. So in closing, Peter's letter draws on the person and work of Jesus Christ as an example, a paradigm for how believers are to respond to suffering. In the previous passage that we've looked at, we've observed that Christ is often introduced to further illustrate the behavior that Peter's audience and we are to live out now that we are in Christ and facing persecution. This status of being in Christ is what makes Peter's use of Christ much more substantial. Or better yet, here's where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. <clears throat> believers, believers are appointed to suffer because they have been appointed to be united with the Son. We are called to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. We are rejected living stones because the living stone was rejected. We are reviled for living righteously because Christ was reviled. In the midst of unjust treatment, we are to look upon the cross and see the truly just suffer for the unjust. Our time in the flesh is to be done according to the will of God as his was. Our suffering is to be shared suffering with Christ, which is all the more reason to rejoice. And lastly, after our momentary suffering, like our saviors, we are called into the Father's glory as Christ was. Peter's use of Christ is needed because believers are called to follow the same pattern as their Lord, which is this. Believers will reign one day as Christ is presently doing, but their rule will come after a period of suffering as Christ endured. This is what gets us through, the Son of God. It's time to believe him when he said, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. Christianity is the only religion whose God bears the scars of evil. In my opinion, that'll be the only remembrance of our life here on earth, his nail-pierced hands. If we look at the crucifixion, we see three crosses. They show us how universal suffering is. We see the, the curse in the unrepentant thief. We see the redemption in the repentant thief. And we see the perfect son of God. None of them escaped, and neither will we. But there's good news. There's good news. God, the eternal creator of the universe, created us to have relationship with him. And hear me when I say this. Our sins, the world calls them imperfections, flukes, whatever you want to call it, Though the Bible calls those things sins, and those sins separate us from that creator God. Sins cannot be removed by our blood, sweat, and tears. No amount of blood from the Old Testament animal sacrifices, 
No amount of sweat from our own efforts, no amount of crying to be accepted by the culture will ever and could ever do it. But God sent his son Jesus, who, pray, who paid the price for our sins, died and rose again. And everyone, no matter your reputation, no matter your past, I don't care what you've done. Everyone who trusts in him alone has eternal life. And that eternal life, church, starts today. The moment you utter the words, I believe. So do you. So when someone asks you, if God, why suffering? Here's your answer. Because it makes me more like Jesus. They will scoff. They will ridicule. But if the Lord tarries and they come to Christ, they will know exactly what it means for, for, for you to say that. It is the most important thing you could communicate. And like I said before, if you try to remove him, you remove your only solution. So come and taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the glorious inheritance that is your son. Father, we know that we will have riches in heaven. We will have rewards. We will have everything that we desire all of our hopes, all of our dreams will be fulfilled, Lord, if they are according to your will in heaven. But even more importantly than that, Lord, you gave us your only begotten son so that when we are faced by the tribulation of the world, when we are faced by suffering, when we receive a diagnosis, when we grieve over an open casket, you give us hope because you allowed for us to experience an empty tomb. Many people consider it just another holiday, but we consider it a great victory that keeps us going when we don't have the power to do so. But you bless us with your Holy Spirit to empower us, for us to desire godliness, for us to reconcile with those who, who have wronged us, so, Father, as we enter the Christmas season and live through it, remind us that it is a holiday that we celebrate daily, that you chose to enter history in the person of your Son to rescue us, to fulfill the greatest rescue plan in the history of the cosmos. Simply, and utterly to have us. So, Father, let us approach, let us run to your throne room of grace as Jesus ran to the cross. You are our great hope. You are our great salvation. Let that be true today. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' mighty name we pray and all the saints said, Amen. Amen.